Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Forum's Matzav podcast, the podcast that brings you all the latest updates and analysis on the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. I'm Eli Koaz, Communications and Digital Director at IPF. And I'm Noah Schusterman, the Communications and Research Fellow. This week we want to talk about Israel's neighborhood, the Middle East, and the regional threats it poses. Since 48, this neighborhood changed quite drastically, and the threats that preoccupy the current security establishment are immensely different. On the one hand, Israel doesn't have to worry about Egypt, Jordan, or Iraq, but the focus shifted to other dangerous foes, Hezbollah, Hamas, Iran. To help us understand the regional arena, we want to welcome Dr. Chuck Freilich, a former Deputy National Security Advisor to the State of Israel, and author of Zion's Dilemma, How Israel Makes National Security Policy, and his latest book is Israeli National Security, A New Strategy for an Era of Change. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Hi. Maybe start by telling us what are the major threats for Israel in the region today? Well, there are a whole variety, but before I talk about that, I want to do something which is actually almost unprecedented in the history of Israeli and uh, Jewish national security discourse. And I'd like to start by saying something that is both positive and optimistic. And I'm talking about Israeli national security. Yeah, I'm waiting. (laughs) It's hard to imagine, right? We're going to be celebrating our 70th anniversary in a few months. And I think that the remarkable thing is that at age 70, Israel is a prosperous, vibrantly democratic, and I would say, and here's the big surprise, a fundamentally secure state. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't still face a whole variety of threats, and I'll say something about that in a minute. But the good news is that no one is going to wipe us out anymore. There are no uh, existential threats anymore. And as long as Iran does not go nuclear, we will not face nuclear threats. Uh, Personally, I'm optimistic that if the Iranian issue is handled properly, and we can talk about that in a minute, that we can prevent Iran from going nuclear. And if the deal holds for its intended uh, 10 plus years, that will be a period of 50 years in which Israel has not faced an existential threat. And I think that's a dramatic achievement. Now, in other countries, if you say, well, you don't face an existential threat, you say, what's the big deal? For Israel, that's a huge success, and I think it's been a success of uh, Israel's national security strategy. But if you wanted me to talk about the threats today, the biggest threat is, of course, Iran, is the danger that, uh, despite what I was saying before, it may still go nuclear. And if that happens, Iran poses a potentially existential threat. And existential is as bad as it gets. But that's a few years off. The immediate threat, and I think in reality the greatest uh, threat in concrete terms, is Hezbollah. Now, Hezbollah, to a certain extent, is is the same as saying Iran, because it it is an Iranian proxy. It's supplied by Iran. And they've got something like uh, the figures in dispute, but an order of magnitude of 130,000 rockets aimed at Israel. That is a very, 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 very big number of rockets. It's just about, I'll overstate the case, it's a rocket for every square meter in the state of Israel. And the next war, if and when it breaks out, will be extremely ugly on both sides. I distinctly would not want to be in Lebanon during the next war because Lebanon will be devastated and set back um, by years. It's also not going to be fun in Israel this, either. It wasn't fun in 2006. It's, not gonna, it's even more so not going to be fun this time 
the home front is going to be hit in a way that Israel, Israel's home front has never been hit, at least since the War of Independence. But still, still not to the extent of an existential threat? No, okay. it's not existential. Um, it's nowhere near it. Mm-hmm. And it's not as if Hezbollah is going to do what we were always afraid of uh, with the Arab armies of an invasion and conquering half of Israel, all, all of Israel. Uh, there is a threat that they might actually be able to capture a border town, uh, Metula or something like that, or maybe just a neighborhood in one of the border towns. And as far as I'm concerned, that in itself would be a catastrophe because aside from, of course, the, the people who will be hurt or killed, I think the psychological blow for Israel will be, it'll be like Yom Kippur, like the war. You said when or if. Um, why would Hezbollah look to engage in a conflict with Israel? Would it be because of Iranian pressure? I don't think Iran has to pressure Hezbollah. Hezbollah is, uh, first of all, it, it's an offshoot. It's, it's a proxy of Iran's. But it's a fundamentally jihadi organization, and its raison d'etre is to fight Israel. Now, for the last 11 years, we've had an unexpected state of calm on the border. Uh, at least for the first few years, I think that was because despite all the failings of the 2006 war, Lebanon was hit really hard, and we did achieve uh, some fairly significant deterrence. At some point, the Israeli deterrence, I think, started fading, and uh, Hezbollah's involvement in Syria, which required most of their resources, um, that started accounting for the quiet that we've had in the recent years. But it's still some combination of the two. Sooner or later, the Syrian situation will calm down, and they'll be able to redivert their attentions towards Israel. They're waiting for that. So maybe that's a good way to transition into Syria. Now, how important is, uh, obviously, Russia's Russia's there, which kind of, and Bibi has been in Russia several times to try to kind of maneuver his way, uh, create an understanding between him and Russia so Israel can operate to effectively cut out the connection from Iran and the weapons being moved over into Lebanon. How does that come into effect, and how do you think Israel should, should approach it? I think every possible outcome in Syria is bad for Israel very bad. It's, it's a degree of just how very bad. It looks like the outcome today is one in which the Assad regime remains in place, uh, propped up by Russia and Iran. And in effect, the danger is eventually the Russians will go home or largely withdraw. Iran won't. Iran is in the region forever. And the danger is that uh, Syria will in effect become a a satellite, a proxy of Iran's, or that at a bare minimum the Syrians allow the Iranians to start stationing significant forces of their own in Syria, and of course to allow Hezbollah to operate. And now we then have a two-front Hezbollah, uh, front of Hezbollah war. And Hezbollah, you have to give them credit, it is an extremely effective, disciplined, um, hard-fighting military force. I think Nasrallah and Hezbollah are the most sophisticated adversary Israel's ever faced, and they don't have the size. It's not the same threat as the Arab countries were, but on the other hand, they get a hit to home front in a way that the Arab countries never succeeded. But now that they're also playing, I mean, for the past few years, um, they're also playing a political part in the re- in Lebanon, and not only a military part. Um, does that, in a way, maybe require them to have, show more responsibility towards civilians and maybe think twice before they hit Israel because they know the amount of devastation that's going to happen in the region? 
That's a good point. Um, like there aren't too many good things that one can say or that I would say about Hezbollah, but one of them is that it actually does care about public opinion in Lebanon. It is, as you're saying, it's a part of Lebanese society. And part of the deterrence that I was talking about before was, in effect, this is me paraphrasing it, was Lebanese society turning to Hezbollah, I'm talking now after the 2006 war, and saying, hey, guys, enough. Uh, we paid the price for your war. We don't want to do that again. And that public sentiment is still there. Hezbollah is aware of it. And there's a limit to how much they want to push that. On the other hand, they do have their fundamental jihadi identity, and I said that's their raison d'etre, and sooner or later they'll decide that the timing is right, and I think they will be willing to do it, domestic opinion notwithstanding. You asked, by the way, though, I, I didn't answer you about Russia. I spoke just about the Iranian side of the equation. Look, preferably this whole situation wouldn't have existed and Russia wouldn't be there. But given the fact that the United States is not playing in Syria other than in ending the ISIS presence, and that sooner in the not distant future will be taken care of. But the U.S. isn't playing now in the, really in the domestic situation in Syria. The Russians are, and they're the ones who have become the primary player, and they're the ones who are going to determine the nature of the outcome. Paradoxically, I think they're a stabilizing force from Israel's point of view today. Their presence in Syria at the moment is a good thing. Why? Can you elaborate on that? Because otherwise Syria would truly become an Iranian outpost, and Russia's interests are not the same as Iran's in Syria, and they're keeping the Iranians somewhat in check today, and I think will do so in the future. Um, we wanted them to keep Iran and Hezbollah 60 kilometers from the border. Well, they're saying much less than that. There's some sort of negotiation going on between the sides. But even if it's probably going to be much less than what we would like, it's still better than what the situation would be otherwise. I think otherwise Syria and uh, Iran and Hezbollah would simply be setting up an unlimited front against us in Syria as well. Mm -hmm. So maybe let's talk now about the, um, the nuclear deal. Um, we've heard for the past few weeks and actually since Trump got elected and campaigned, about him wanting to repeal the uh, the nuclear deal that Obama um, mm -hmm. signed with Iran. Um, but then when every important junction comes, he actually decides to keep on and recertifying the, the deal. Um, and now we actually, I mean, Netanyahu recently said on CNN that the deal has to be changed, um, the agreement, and what's happening on that? Um, on that front? Do we see any kind of chance for the agreement to be in any way changed or repealed? Or what are the alternatives, too? I mean, so let's say the U.S. repeals the, the agreement, and then what happens? I, uh, I'm, a, first of all, just in the interest of full disclosure, I'm a strong supporter of the agreement. On record, I wrote uh, half a dozen op-eds about it. I don't think that the deal can be, and, and by the way, let me step back for a second. I mean, it's not as if this was a perfect deal or this was anybody's dream deal. It wasn't. That's the nature of compromise agreements. If you can impose your own terms, had Obama been able to, if it was a dictate, that's one thing. But that wasn't the case. It was a compromise deal, so we didn't get what, everything we wanted, certainly not everything that I wanted, again, as a supporter. And I think the deal had two basic flaws. One was that it leaves Iran's nuclear infrastructure intact. 
yes, they had to roll it back. Uh, they had to pour cement into the um, plutonium reactor, uh, other things. But fundamentally, when the deal expires, the infrastructure is there. And that's the second problem is that the deal does expire. It has what's called a sunset clause after 10 to 15 years, except for one or two items that are, for example, the intrusive inspections that are in perpetuity. Those two things, or the sunset clause primarily, is what should be corrected. The, the, the question is, what does corrected mean? Do you want to open the deal? Do you want to cancel the deal, renegotiate the deal? Or is it an add-on? I don't believe that the deal can be reopened and renegotiated. I think that's a fantasy. Um, the allies won't agree to it. The, other, the P6, or at least the Europeans there, and the Iranians certainly won't agree to it. Why should they? This is a deal that they signed in good faith, bad faith, whatever faith, two years ago. The IAEA says that they're observing it. Why, why should they agree to renegotiate it after two years? Um, so I think that's absurd to think that that can be done. There's an idea which has been floated. Uh, ambassador Haley, the American UN ambassador, floated about uh, two weeks ago. And the idea is that the U.S. would decertify. In other words, say that they're not in compliance, but that the president wouldn't reimpose sanctions. He'd pass that or throw the ball to the Senate and let the Senate decide. That's a way of um, eating your cake, uh, having your cake and not eating it. That doesn't work. If the United States doesn't certify that the Iranians are in compliance, when the IAEA says that they're in compliance, then the Iranians may walk away from the deal again. And the allies will be stunned by this as well. And how's the Senate get a handle it? So I think what we have to do is recognize that there's the world as we want it to be and there's the world as it is. And in the world as it is, there was a major achievement. We gained 10 to 15 years, assuming Iran adheres. Today there's a question what the United States is getting here. And how do we best use this time to ensure that when it's over, Iran can never go nuclear? And the way to do that is, I believe, a follow-on agreement. And this is an idea which the administration has apparently been raising with the various allies in recent weeks. And we saw it just last week, President Macron of France coming out and saying that he's now in favor, publicly stating that he's in favor of a follow-on agreement. I think that's what we should be doing. How does the follow-on agreement work? Is it just an extension of the 10 to 15-year period with the same restrictions? Well, there's a question. That's a good question. There's a question whether will this be negotiated with the Iranians? And if that's the case, which would be preferable, uh, I think it's early to do that. I would build international support for this now. I think, yes, the U.S. should be talking to everyone about this, but I don't think it has to be negotiated with the Iranians yet. Uh, that's one possibility. And the other possibility is that the, the P6, you know, it's all six partners to the agreement, or just the U.S. and the European partners, if Russia and China aren't willing to go, get on board, say, look, uh, when the deal expires, it continues to remain in force, and if Iran violates it, then we reimpose sanctions. What so do it could be done unilaterally. Mm -hmm. What do you think Netanyahu is trying to do by constantly... Is he just trying to be consistent? He was against the Iran deal from the get-go, and he's trying to... Or does he really think he can get Trump... Or does he even want him to back out of the deal or at least remove the United States from, from it? I'm not uh, really sure what he's trying to do. I think... Uh, uh, it's really interesting that until a few days ago, he hadn't said anything about it for months almost. 
and there was the entire public debate building in the United States and in Israel about the extension, not extension, and, and Bibi wasn't saying anything. All right, now he came out with the statement, which was that it should either be fixed or scrapped. I think the scrapped, uh, he probably understands as well as I do, is not realistic at this point. And I hope, I don't know, I hope his definition of, of fix is similar to mine. It's basically adding on the, uh, the add-on agreement. And by the way, just making sure that there are uh, effective inspections. What are Israel's other alternatives to the deal? I mean, what happens, let's say the deal is scrapped. Does that leave Israel better off or maybe that's worse? That's why I, I mean, your question is exactly why I supported the deal, because you have to look at the options. And life is always, it's a matter of what are your options. The United States under President Obama was not going to go military. Right or wrong, he wasn't going to do it. Uh, I think the same can be said today for President Trump. And even if he wanted to go the military route, let's remember there's another nuclear crisis underway at the moment, and it's a more acute one, North Korea. So that the United States isn't going to go military today either. Does Israel want to go the military route? Uh, I think the answer is no, because how much time can we gain? Let's say we're willing to pay the price, and there's going to be a heavy price. Hezbollah's going to open up with everything they have. The Iranians will open up with everything they have. If you ask me when push comes to shove at the very last minute, when we've exhausted every other option, should Israel do it? My answer is yes. But how much time are we going to gain? A year, two years, three years? That's it. How much time did we gain with the nuclear deal? If it's upheld, 10 to 15. So I take what I call uh, the Dayenu approach to national security. You can't get everything. Dayenu, it's good enough. And then we'll worry about the future when the future comes. How do you think Israel should bet? I mean, what's the best way for them to deal with Iran? I mean, right now it's a lot of, I mean, it's obviously funding Hezbollah and Hamas and all of that, but also, I mean, you have the rhetoric, I think it was a few days ago, senior military uh, guy in Iran saying, we'll, we'll wipe off Haifa, Tel Aviv, on all their missiles they put Israeli cities. I mean, are these just like fear tactics? Or is there any, like, what's the best, what should Israel's approach be to Iran, in your opinion? Iran is the greatest threat we face today, and I think, as I was saying before, that Iran is the most sophisticated and, in that sense, the greatest danger we've ever felt faced. I think there's no one answer. Iran is a regional superpower. We can't solve the Iranian problem on our own. I think this is the first case, the first country since Israel was established, that we can handle defensively. Iran can't destroy us, but we can't defeat Iran either today. And so the answer, how do you handle a country like this, is a multi-layered one. Part of it is, yes, building up our capabilities for if and when the hour comes and we have to be ready. I think, and part of it is fighting Iran's local proxies, mostly Hezbollah and Hamas. Uh, most of it is trying to join and shape and, in, in some cases, encourage uh, the international coalition that does exist against Iran. Now, there was a very strong international coalition against the nuclear program. There is a relatively broad coalition today against Iran's expanding influence in the region. You undermine that coalition when you start talking about withdrawing from the nuclear deal. So what I think we should be doing, Israel, is we should be coming to everyone and saying, hey, 
this deal is of the bad of the bad options available it's the best or it's the least bad we want to preserve it we want to make sure that the inspections are held and that they're really looking for what has to be looked for and if Iran is caught with any violations then it either has to come back into compliance or if not then how do we deal with it and at the same time we have to build international support for heightened pressure against Iran's other activities for example its presence in Syria in Lebanon in Yemen in Iraq Iran is a, is a serious danger and also regional support I mean you have a almost sure. an unprecedented unprecedented situation where you have Saudi Arabia and Egypt who are see see the situation eye to eye um, with Israel so do you think that maybe advancing on the Palestinian issue let's say could could help kind of bring those countries closer together with Israel and have a united front against Iran within the region? First of all, yes, I think it would help. And I think uh, some of the good news today is that pretty much all the Sunni countries, certainly the Gulf countries, uh, in addition, of course, to Egypt and Jordan, they all want some relationship with Israel. Uh, the Emir of Bahrain just, uh, I think it was yesterday, came out with a statement saying that Israelis are free to visit Bahrain and vice versa. Uh, I think the Saudis want some sort of relationship with us today. I'm a little bit, uh, I'm on, in the skeptical camp when it comes to how much actual cooperation there can be between Israel and the Saudis and some of the other countries. UAE, for example, uh, Bahrain, uh, Qatar, there can be cooperation with. Uh, the Saudis, I'm a little... Qatar, more. even though they're funding most of the today, fundamentalist right. terrorists? Today, maybe yeah. no, but down the line, yes. Okay. Um, but the precondition for turning this into any practical cooperation of significance, I'm sure there's some quiet talk here and there, but concrete cooperation of any importance, I think is what you were alluding to. Is there's got to be progress on the Palestinian thing, partly because the Arab countries truly are committed to it, and partly just in terms of their own uh, politics, they can't do it without that cover. And I guess the public support, too, because you have a lot of, I mean... In Jordan, obviously, like the Jordanian, the government and Israel have close relations, but the overall population, they have strong disdain for, for Israel. And also the same thing with, with Egypt. So maybe, so if the Palestinian issue was properly addressed and moved forward, you'd start to, to also improve Israel's, how Israel is perceived in these Arab societies. Absolutely. Now, I think uh, the prime minister is right. He's presented this as a big change, the public sentiment in, in the Sunni world willingness to have some more relations with us, certainly cooperation with Egypt and Jordan is increasing, but there, he oversells it, there's a limit to this. Without the breakthrough that you're talking about, then it can't go too far. So do you think Trump can actually be successful in his initiative that he's trying to pursue at the moment? The, the, the peace initiative. The peace initiative, the ultimate deal, as he refers to it. The short answer is no. The somewhat longer answer is I don't, I don't believe that there can be a final deal for years. Uh, the leadership isn't there on either side, uh, both in terms of willingness to make the compromise and ability to make the compromises in terms of domestic politics on both sides. I say that with, uh, with great pain because it's not what I would like to see. I think... Israel's number one national security interest by far is to reach a deal, either reach a deal with the Palestinians or separate unilaterally. 
I think that's even more important than the Iranian issue because one way or the other, I think we're going to handle the Iranian issue. I'm not sure how we're going to handle the Palestinian issue. And I greatly fear that we're reaching the tipping point with a potential two-state solution. I don't know exactly what a tipping point is, exactly how you say when it's arrived, but it's clearly, it's getting harder. It's getting much harder. The number of settlers is growing. Yes, most of them are not... Uh, there's only about 20% in, that would have to be moved, assuming Israel annexes uh, the blocks, the three blocks, and not much more. But that's 100,000 people is still a lot of people to move, 20%. There's less land free today for land swaps than there was uh, 17 years ago at Camp David. So it gets harder. I don't think we've reached the, the tipping point yet, but we're getting closer. Mm-hmm. So even though the Palestinian issue is not, as you said before, an existential threat, it's still, you would refer to it as one of, as, as you said, Israel's first priority when it comes to national security. I would say it's actually the only existential threat. Okay. Because it's not existential in the physical sense, okay? Israel won't be wiped out. But if Israel was established to be the democratic home of the Jewish people, I think this is, is the greatest threat. Now, it's possible that being in the Middle East, everything else is nutty, so why shouldn't this be? In the end, we may have to find some alternative to a clear break, a clear total two-state solution with an absolute divide, a straight line down, down the middle. I still don't see any real alternative to that if we want to remain a Jewish and democratic state. A lot of people don't know the statistics, but already today, not in the distant future, today, 2017, if you take the combined Arab population in Israel and the West Bank, it's it's about 41, 42% of Israel's total population. 41%, let's say. Uh, Good news is, by the way, it stays stays, uh, almost the same out through 2060, which is as far as the projections go, because the Arab birth rates are coming down and Israel is pretty high. But is a country in which 41% of the population is Arab, is that a Jewish state? Um, My answer is no. That's certainly not the Jewish state that I want to live in. And I think that's where uh, the really critical... It's almost a life-or-death decision that has to be made. Uh, Maybe one last question. So under this Netanyahu-Trump relationship, what is the best that we can hope for for people who support the two-state solution and support Israel remaining Jewish and democratic? On one hand, the Netanyahu government, they're not going ahead with the far-right and Naftali Bennett's annexation plan. On the other hand, they're not making any steps to... uh, to separate from the Palestinians or to engage mm-hmm. in a meaningful two-state process. So is it kind of damage control? Let's hope that the two-state solution is still a possibility at the end of Netanyahu's time in office or Trump's time in office? Or are we in serious trouble? Or can we be optimistic that something miraculously could happen? Well, you remember, of course, Ben-Gurion's famous statement that in Israel, if you, uh, if you don't believe in miracles, you're not a realist, right? Of course. Okay. So we, of course, always have to believe in miracles and maybe plan for them. But short of that, no, I think, um, in all seriousness, I think basically if we're talking about the Palestinian issue, the peace process, we're we're in a damage control mode and we have to get through the next few years um, in all three capitals at this point, in Washington, in Jerusalem, and in Ramallah.
because the leadership on all three sides is neither committed to nor capable of making the concessions that are essential. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you guys next week. Don't forget to engage with uh, IPF online and uh, follow us uh, and check out our Matsav blog, www.matsavblog.com. Thanks very much. Thank you.